0: Hello and welcome everybody, YouTubers everywhere, I think I'm going to start calling you my Partners in Crime or Crime Awareness, we need to think of a name for all the people that comment and, and follow us. So I think I like it actually, I think I like that, you know Partners in Crime, it could be a, a good thing, I think I remember that one. So listen, today's case is another true crime case, this is a Solve case, It's I think the crime took place on the 8th of December. 1980, and this is the case and the murder of John Lennon. Lacey absolutely loves the Beatles, John Lennon. I think so does everybody else. I don't know anyone that doesn't. So, this case is really a quite a sad case, really, because this man was taken far, far too young. But it's also about a case about mental health, I think. And when you really listen to this story, this case, it shows that this man really was disturbed in quite a way. Now the man that murdered John Lennon was uh, Mark David Chapman and he was born I think in 1955. Uh, He's an American criminal and he is known, and his only crime I think that he was known for is murdering um, John Lennon, but he did have a list of many, many more people on his list that he was going to go through if he couldn't have got to John Lennon, and even if he got away with it really I think he would have carried on. So this is quite an interesting case, it's an interesting case because of the circumstances around this murder and what really led up to it and was there really signs um, that Chapman would have done something? I, th- I think there was. So On the 8th of December 1980, John Lennon was going back to his apartment in the Dakota um, apartments in Manhattan with his wife uh, Yoko Ono. he'd already spoke to Chapman earlier on in the evening and John Lennon was actually shot in the back I think four or five times he was shot in the back by Chapman. So I think what we need to do is have a look at Chapman and leading up to this murder of John Lennon. So Mark Chapman He was born on the 10th of May, 1955, in Fort Worth, Texas. His father was a Staff Sergeant in uh, the US Air Force. So I think think it's well known that Chapman's father was very, very strict anyway on him. Um, His father, David Chapman, was married to Diana and um, or diane and she was a nurse so he had what you would call a stable childhood could we say but there was issues even from young in his childhood he didn't feel um, that he was um, accepted by his father he actually says he lived in fear of his father so chapman's father david chapman was this air force sergeant he used to, I think there was domestic violence in the home and um, Mark Chapman has said that before he said that he was um, abusive physically abusive to his mother he also didn't feel that his father cared for him or loved him he was a very violent man and I think with Chapman he just was withdrawn his mother was very loving so he's a bit of a mummy's boy really but I think the the issues with the with the abuse the physical abuse even towards his mother as he grew up really affected him badly. And as a child he did have delusions even then. So there was clear signs that there was some sort of mental health forming in, in this man, very young. So Chapman I mean he was only very young actually when he was having these delusions, but he also had this grandiose idea of himself. He was like this king, like power he had, or he thought he had, over this imaginary people, little people, that lived in his walls of his bedroom. And he was the king over them. Because I don't think he felt he had any power within his life, in his home. So he was a very quiet man. He was You could see he was already disturbed as a child. Now, lots of kids have imaginary friends. But they don't have imaginary little people that live in the wall, and you have these conversations with them constantly. You're living this world as he was, even as a child. But I think it was an escapism for him because the abuse that he saw the mother suffering, and also physical abuse that he was suffering from this father. And he says this himself he says that he really, um, that was his world. He'd made up this world in his room. And he was um, very delusional and had very grandiose ideas and that's a clear sign then of some form of mental health very early on, probably caused by trauma, definitely probably caused by trauma. So Chapman, by the time he was 14, I think he was attending um, Columbia High School. He was already skipping school, playing truant, he was taking drugs he was um, you know skipping lots of classes but really taking a lot of drugs at that that point and this was at 14 now the problem is when you're young and you're taking drugs it also affects the, the growth in the mind the brain it, it, it you know it it really affects it and i think a lot of people that suffer from mental health use drink or drugs to try and self manage it because i don't think anyone was doing anything about this boy's delusions about this his anxiety and his feelings of worthlessness and unloved and then these delusions, it didn't seem like anyone was giving him any help. And that happens a lot, especially in 1955, 1965, you know, 1970s, mental health was not like it is today. People get help now, they couldn't get really help in them days. So I think the drugs and the skipping school is One, yes he was a teenager, but two, he was a teenager with definite issues, definite mental health issues, and still suffering from these delusions, these grandiose ideas of himself and that was what gave him this empowerment. He says himself that he was bullied at school, Um, he says it was because he wasn't a good athlete. I mean he was probably bullied at school for different reasons, but in his mind that's how we really found it, he thought because he wasn't good at this af- as an athlete and he wasn't popular um, but he was bullied. By 1971 Chapman had become very religious and sometimes that can be a sign because he already had these grandiose ideas and sometimes people with mental health do go to religion, they, f- they find that it, it helps them. To understand things, and he became actually a born again um, Presbyterian, Uh, and he was going around distributing, you know, biblical texts and stuff like this to people wanting to talk to people about these ideas. Now, not everybody that does this has got mental health, but as you as he leads up through to this murder, you can see this religious um, feeling for him. Was different than from someone that just worships. He already had these grandiose ideas of himself. And so now he was trying to, you know, talk to people, and a lot of them was about his beliefs as well. And he found this church was accepting of him. He was grateful for that and actually did quite well, to tell you the truth, for a very, very long time. I think it kept him quite stable. So he met his first girlfriend there, within this time, 1971-1972, and her name was Jessica uh, Blankenship, and he, they began to work then in these summer camps as counselling, and he was a great counsellor, you know, he was, because I think he could understand, you know, you have a lot of kids and stuff and they loved him, these kids, and he worked for the um, in Georgia for the YMCA, he was well liked, the kids loved him, but I really do think it's because he understood, and he was really quite stable at this point, and I think the thing is with mental health, if when you have episodes and it's clear to see that he does have episodes throughout his life, these episodes can last months and it can really change your personality, but I think at this stage he was working, he was comfortable within his life, he had a girlfriend, he seemed that he felt he was normal, he he was accepted and he was doing great work. And everyone liked him. Everyone. The children called him Nemo. I think he was made um, assistant director uh, after winning awards for outstanding counselling. He really put his whole self into this. Um, And a few of them that you know that spoke about him, you know, no they can't believe how why he's done this or what he's done. Said. He was an absolute amazing person, so helpful, so kind, so great with his kids. You know, it's 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 a, stra- it's a strange thing what mental health, isn't it, can do to you, really. So as he was doing all this, and he was comfortable, and he was doing all this, someone, one of his friends, recommended a book for him to read. And it was called Catcher in the Rye. Uh, and he read it. And when he read it, he became obsessed with the character in it, really obsessed. He believed he was that character. It didn't take long either for him to start believing that. He was obsessed with the music, but not just with music, but the lyrics. He was obsessed with the Beatles, and he was obsessed with John Lennon. He was obsessed with David Bowie. He was obsessed, but he didn't listen just to the music and enjoyed the music. He took every word that was said to heart. He analyzed every word in John Lennon's songs and the Beatles songs, every word. Now John Lennon had already left the Beatles by the time he was murdered, so the stuff that Chapman was saying about what he said in some of his lyrics and stuff were ten years old at the time. John Lennon had moved on. And so I think you could see this obsession now was becoming his reality. He then was again delusional. No one knows why because really no one ever checked or he we never went to um, anyone, psychiatrist or anyone, to get any help even though people knew things, what was going on. So he's got this book, Catcher in the Rye, and this is what changed everything for Chapman. It just changed everything. In the meantime of reading this book and taking on this character, and I think his character he took on this character. He wanted to be this character. He lived it. This is he could see himself in here again. You see, this grandiose idea, and then of this religion thing because he felt that he could preach about that. Then he's found this book. That he's found a character in this book that he absolutely um, idolizes. Wants to be him, and it's a character in a book, and then the words of the songs, obsessed. With the word, each word, he would stop and listen to each word. So there was something clearly going on in his mind, clearly. So I think after graduating Columbia uh, High School, he moved to Chicago then, I think, with the girlfriend, and he played guitar in churches and some of his um, fellow um, people, friends and stuff throughout this church that he'd, he'd met, um, would do different things in the churches, you know, and um, I think they'd do impressions and stuff, but he played the guitar. But successfully with the World Vision and with the Vietnamese um, refugees, he, um, I think that was in Alaska, and he also spent a brief time in Lebanon, also doing this same work. So he's quite a charitable worker. Um, you know, and even again, at this time he worked with these um people and friends, um, no one really had a b- bad word to say again about him, yes he was a little bit I suppose shy and um, you know they may have thought he had some strange um, things going on but I don't think they ever thought he was going to do what he did. So this is now where it gets, you know when you think about the people that Mark Chapman met. And even though we know at this point he was probably going through this feeling of, well we know he would already read Catcher in the Rye, we know he already took on this persona of this character. We knew now that he was delusional probably for a very, very long time. And I think he worked with um, uh, um, someone called Moore. Who was like the head director of this thing? And, And he took Chapman, Mark Chapman, with him when he had a meeting with President Gerald Ford. And President Gerald Ford shook Mark Chapman's hand. So that's how close he got. That's how easy it is to not see when someone can be that dangerous. And this man, probably even at that point, was already getting dangerous to get that close. To really, you know, Gerald Ford, president of America. I mean, <laughs> you know, you've got to think, and I don't know, I don't know if he was on his list, but there was a lot of people. I think Reagan was on his list, and there was other people on his list that he wanted to kill. Luckily, at that point, he hadn't got that far, or else I think, you know, President Gerald um, Ford would have had issues there with Chapman. So Chapman's girlfriend at the time. Um, Wanted went to this um, Covenant College, I think it was in Lockout Mountain in Georgia, and he wanted to go so he went. But by this stage, you see, he was getting, probably having more of an episode, and these episodes were coming more and more frequent. He was reading this book, he was obsessed with this book, and when he got to this college, he couldn't do the work, he couldn't keep up, he was frustrated, it frustrated him, because When you're suffering from mental health, they say it's like having, I mean, they say with schizophrenia, it's really like having, you know, dementia or something like that. The brain, uh, the thought pattern can't, it doesn't link. It could be many, many things going on at once. And for you to be able to concentrate on one thing, it's very, very difficult. Because he was so obsessed with so many other things, his brain wasn't stopping. He couldn't do now this college work. It, he realised and he, he left and he really felt then that he had let himself down so now he's angry at himself as well as everybody else and then he started to have an affair or so he says because don't forget he is delusional so he's telling you now that he's had an affair he feels so much guilt about this affair um, and he could have he could he, he could have but he doesn't really go into detail when he talks about an affair who it was with whatever it was just about this guilt, he felt this tremendous guilt. And he then he couldn't face the girlfriend. Now paranoia was a big thing in this man's life. So he was delusional, he was paranoid. There was a lot going on. And so, yes, he said he had an affair, but there was no real de- detail about it. But it was the guilt he felt. Whether he did or he didn't, to him it was real. And that guilt then started eating away at him. So in the end, um he couldn't really cope then with even seeing his girlfriend at that point. I don't even think Mark Chapman finished even one semester at that college and after that I think the girlfriend then finished with him. So then now he's really feeling bad isn't he and now he starts then to move on. He then works as a security guard um, um, and he then took, which was a worry, a week's course I thought, I've never fired a gun in my life, I know in America you, you, you do and I, I wouldn't know how to do it, but to do a week's course in it, um, so then been, you can become an armed guard. Again this man's got no history um, that anyone knows about of mental health. He hasn't seen a doctor, no one's, you know, even though he's having these delusions and he has done from me when he was very young, he's now took one week's course and then got a gun licence. I think by 1977 Chapman had really then started to feel suicidal himself. He had moved to Hawaii, he had attempted suicide, I think it was uh, carbon monoxide poison, he tried to put the tube into the exhaust and do it through the window, but the car got too hot and the actual tube that he used melted, so that failed. And I think he thought himself, I can't even kill myself. Um, But he would have been that desperate at that time to take his own life. His mental health now was getting so severe, he couldn't handle it. So after this, this is the only time that Mark Chapman actually saw a psychiatrist. And that was after he tried to commit suicide. And the psychiatrist admitted um, Chapman to Castle Memorial Hospital um, for clinical depression. As I say, this was in 1977 Then he done this. Not long, three years later, he's murdered John Lennon. So his mental health has escalated. They say it's depression, then they sort of give him a few medications, keep him a couple of weeks and let him go. But now this man has now got a gun licence as well. Now he has got a mental health issue, but not an issue of schizophrenia or personality disorder or anything like that that is going to stop him getting a gun license. He's got depression, clinical depression. People have it a lot and I don't know in America if clinical depression would stop you getting a gun. But it's too late, isn't it? Because this man's already got one. So after Chapman's released from this psychiatric unit, he went to actually work in a hospital. He felt it was a calm atmosphere and he'd actually worked there quite well for a couple of years. Um, At the same time though, as he worked there, his parents started to get divorced. Now don't forget the mother had put up for years of domestic abuse from this man, and then she finally decides to leave him and divorce him. And then she then arrives in Hawaii to spend and live time with and live with her son, Mark Chapman. And I think he was happy with that. She you know, he I think that's what he needed at that point because he'd always gotten well with his mother, but not with the father. Now in nineteen seventy eight The film came out, um, or around that time, of Around the World in 80 Days. Now we've already said that he had this obsession with Catcher in the Rye, which he did. He also had this obsession with Around the World in 80 Days. So in 1978 he decided to take a world trip only because of his fascination with this book this is how it, what inspired him to do this, he wanted to do it and he did and I think he visited Tokyo, Seoul, Hong Kong, Singapore, Bangkok, uh, uh, Delhi, Beirut, Geneva, London, Paris and Dublin. He'd done the whole lot, oh. on just because he watched that movie and that inspired him, he got on a plane and he just went for it. Within this time he then um, began a relationship with this travel agent, and she was a Japanese American woman named uh, Gloria Abe, and she married him in June um, the second, nineteen seventy nine. So, you know, June the second, nineteen seventy nine. He hadn't been married long. Chapman got this job at this Castle Memorial Hospital as a printer because that's what he did. He was printing, and he was working alone rather, and then with staff. So he started to change, he then started to withdraw, you see now, he's withdrawing, he's done this world trip, he's come back, he's decided I'm going to be a printer, he's worked solely on his own, he didn't like it. But he then started to have arguments with staff members, for no reason, he would have a a screaming match at someone, really, if you just said something to him, in the end, he had to leave that job, because even the interaction with people, because he worked alone, just just someone that he would see or something he would talk to, he would then start in to react, because he was a little bit paranoid at this point, and sometimes you see when they are in an episode, what you're saying to them, they're not hearing, they are hearing something totally different, and so people couldn't understand why he would blow up in a rage, but sometimes mental health, when you're delusional, when you're that delusional that you are looking at someone and they're talking to you and you really are hearing something completely different come out of their mouth to what they're actually saying this man was now getting quite dangerous so after this, after he was fired and again another job gone another disappointment, another thing he couldn't control he starts to drink as well so now he's drinking, I don't know if he was still taking drugs but he certainly had done earlier on in his um, adolescence. But at this stage, he was now quite a heavy drinker. And again, I've said before, that people with mental health try to self-medicate by taking drugs or alcohol. He was taking alcohol to try and get through. As he was taking this alcohol and he was then trying to get through life, really with this, you know, um, want and need, this obsession to be this character out of the capture in the rye, and the obsession with this music which was getting more and more. He then started to say he disliked um, John Lennon. He disliked John Lennon because of John Lennon's wording. And I think John Lennon went on the telly uh, in an interview and said, um, you know, we're bigger than God. Now, yes, he did say that. And I think, you know, I think that's, that's probably what the one thing that John Lennon probably regretted all his life because I don't think he ever meant it that way. John Lennon came from such a poor background. I mean, these people couldn't walk down the street in the end. These people, you'd, I've seen them get off the plane in New York and stuff. You can't hear them through the screaming of that many fans. I think for John Lennon and the Beatles, they were overwhelmed. They were overwhelmed. These people came from a working class background. They worked their way up. And I think that was a wrong expression that he used, but I think that's the only way he could express himself, because he couldn't think of a, of a way to express what had happened in their life as they've started to build up with the fan base that they had. So I don't think he said it in a way to mean any disrespect to anyone. He didn't. It was just a way of expressing his overwhelming feeling of this, um, what was going on. But you see, Mark Chapman took that very, very seriously. He really did. At that point, he said he was um, it was blasphemy, and that he was going to um, write to him and he wanted to speak to him about this. And he hated him for this. And then he started to listen to his uh, music from when he was in The Beatles, and then pick out certain words that he didn't like. Um, He didn't like Yoko Ono, he didn't believe that John Lennon had all this money. When you're saying in your, you know, um, early songs, you know, you don't need anything, all you need is love, this, they're songs. And at the time when John Lennon was writing them early songs, and Paul McCartney was writing them early songs, they had no money at all. So them 10 years prior to what he's listening to now in this delusional state was not true. He, of course, John Lennon had made millions, millions by then, self-made. That's also what he couldn't stand. He believed that one, he was blasphemy. It was blasphemy what he said. Two, that he was now rich. And he was trying to say, you don't need to be rich. You only, he di- just dissected each of these songs into something that he wanted it to be. And that's exactly why his hatred for John Lennon was. It was just about this. This man's paranoid, delusional. He's got grandiose ideas of himself as this religious person that you should listen to. And so when he thinks that John Lennon had done something, so you know bad that was enough to kill him for now in september of 1980 just a couple of months before Jen and john lennon was murdered um, chapman wrote to a friend uh, linda irish and which he stated to her in this letter i'm going mad really in big that i'm going mad so he's trying to tell people i'm going mad no, and listen, he signed the letter, though, the catcher in the rye. Not by his name. Not even by the character's name in the book, but the book title. But again, no one really was catching on here, that something was really going on and was just about to escalate. This was two months before he killed John Lennon. Chapman says he started to plan this murder about three months before... Um, John Lennon was murdered on the 8th of December 1980. His plans were muddled, as was his mind, they were muddled. He knew what he wanted to do but then you see he had this other list as well. The reason he says he killed John Lennon was because he was the easiest one to get to at that point. I think he had Lennon on the top of his list because of this 1966 comment, 1966 comment um, that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus, that's what they said. So they, that's 1966, this is now 1980. And this man has now done everything he can in this planning, but his, when you look at his planning and it's stated about his planning, it was muddled, it was mixed up, there was no formulation to it. You know, if someone's really going to plan a murder, there's a plan. I wouldn't have said he planned this murder, it was bits and... Pieces, you know, put together. I think with Chapman, he had done a few things um, um, as he went, as he planned, this to go to New York. He'd booked tickets to see um, a show. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, the night after he actually murdered John Lennon. So I just I I think with him, it was a plan, but it wasn't a plan. if He couldn't have got to John Lennon. He would have tried to get them to somebody else on that list at this time as well when he's planning all this and it's on his mind not that he's told anyone at that point that it's on his mind he was in this prayer group in his prayer prayer group Now, some of his friends in this prayer group half after you know was joking and uh referring to john lennon uh, in a joking way about his song imagine and they said well let's imagine that john lennon is dead So this reinforced, not that they meant anything by it, I don't know what a prayer group's doing saying that anyway, but even so, um, this reinforced Chapman's ideas, isn't it? Well, they must agree. They, They think he should die. You know, because of this, imagine, well, let's imagine that John Lennon's dead. He's took that seriously, that comment seriously, because he's in the planning anyway. This has just reinforced how he felt about John Lennon. There was also this, uh, I think reporter, I think it was Anthony Fawcett, um, and Chapman was just so influenced by that as well and it was it was titled actually Lennon, uh, One Day at a Time, um, about Lennon's lifestyle in New York. And I think his wife at the time, Chapman's wife at the time, said that he was so angry that John Lennon had this lifestyle, and yet he would pre- preach, you know, peace and love. and but yet he had millions, he couldn't connect the two. He was really upset that John Lennon had made a lot of money and was living this lifestyle that he had. He didn't think it was right. If you're gonna promote peace and love and, and stuff, um, and charity, how can you have millions? But I think this because the way he had given himself to religion, how he had done counseling and done it for free, he expected everyone to be like that. It was it, it was really difficult when you're talking about someone with mental health to understand the reality or to split the reality from what he believes, which is just paranoia or untruths. Anything that someone says or, or does made this man feel that Lennon was bad. He was preaching poverty in his songs from 10 years prior. But he wasn't living the life That Chapman thought he should live. I think the one thing that Chapman really remembers and really he stands by it is that in you know he said he told us to imagine there's no possessions, and there he was with all his millions, Um, with his you know yachts and his houses and his you know how he lived it was really really getting to him because of the way he was analysing these songs so he believed that John Lennon was laughing at him and at people like him who had brought his songs, who had tried to live their lives, this is his words, around the music so he believed because he believes in this book he wants to be this character in this book this music you don't need any possessions it's the song but to him it was real it was really real and when his life started falling apart he blamed really John Lennon so at this point and this is after Jackman's arrest he's saying he just wants to he wanted to scream out he wanted to say it and scre- he, he couldn't handle this anymore um, he, he thinks that um, he was saying things about the Beatles that he didn't like the Beatles and it was just him and Yoko Ono Everything John Lennon did was now taken to heart. He said um, he just felt like he was going into like blackness, um, of this anger and this rage towards him. And really, there was no reason why. Not really. Now, look, over the years, Chapman has supported on one side and denied on another that he done this, you know, um, whether it was for his spiritual beliefs or whether it was because he wanted to be famous. I mean, I think at one point he said he wanted to be famous, he wanted to acquire the notoriety of it. Um, I don't know if he did, because he didn't speak to the press for six years after the murder anyway about it. I think in court there were some different things said, but only about uh, Catcher in the Rye. So I don't know if it was about he wanted the notoriety or not, because he's not really clear it's not then really clear whether he'd done it for his spiritual beliefs or not, because sometimes he says he would, sometimes he says he wouldn't. But again, this person's got mental health. And so usually he will say something and then something else, because you just don't know what's going on in his mind. His mind is very muddled. Listen, John Lennon was killed purely because this man didn't like him. Because of his mental health, he couldn't understand why John Lennon said things done things in records were ten years previously to, to when he was murdered, because this man dissected the wording. He used and hung on to every word. He was playing a character in a book, and he says about this book, even in court, when he stands up in court, you know, and the judge says, do you have anything to say, sort of thing. He talks about passages in this book. So, John Lennon, and I think we'll go now to the murder, because it's, it's a very sad case this, because I believe that John Lennon was you know, probably a genius of his time. He wrote songs that are still being played today and John Lennon didn't come from a great background. He had a hard upbringing, he had a hard life and it was so sad that it was taken away by this man through someone really that, that at this point, and I'm going to talk about this point in a minute, it Really, could, this could have been stopped. So around September-October time, 1980, Chapman had altered his list actually, he also added to that list uh, Paul McCartney, or as he is now, Sir Paul McCartney, to that list. Also the talk show host Johnny Carson, the actress Elizabeth Taylor was on that list. There was also George C. Scott, there was Jacqueline, uh, Jackie Kennedy, Onassis at that point. And the elected US president, Ronald Reagan, was on that list at some point. And also at the time when he lived in Hawaii, the governor of Hawaii was on that list. So there was a lot of people on this list, and these people on this list with lots of different reasons. They'd done something that he didn't like at all. And then you'd be added to his list. So David Bowie was appearing on Broadway in a show called The Elephant Man. And actually David Bowie was the second on the list of his list, actually he was second on the list. Very worrying for David Bowie after this all came out. So Chapman had brought front row tickets for the night after he had murdered um, John Lennon. Just in case I think it didn't work out. Because also John Lennon and Yoko Ono had purchased front row tickets to see David Bowie's show on the same night. And David Bowie said the night, because he had to go on stage the next night after hearing that his friend John Lennon had been killed by this man, in the front row there was three empty seats at this show of this Elephant Man. One of them was John Lennon's and Ota and the next to it was Mark Chapman. So whether Mark Chapman had killed John Lennon on the 8th of December 1980, he may have killed not only John Lennon on the 9th of December 1980, he may also have took the life of David Bowie on the same night. We just don't know because that never happened because he would murdered and been called for the murder of John Lennon. This man, was a serious man, so I say yes. He had plans, but they were muddled in his mind. So he went to New York in October, nineteen eighty, and he intended to kill John Lennon. Then, no ammunition, so he had to go to a friend's house, again, this unwitting friend, I think Dana Reeves, who lived in Atlanta, and then and then he had to go home, um, again so he couldn't do it. So again, it was like that, but there was also a book that came out or a movie that came out that also made him think, I don't know if I should do this or not. Now this movie was called Ordinary People and it really did make him think to stop his plans. He thought, should I stop my plans? And for a while, for a couple of weeks, when he returned from New York in October, one, he didn't do it because he didn't have the bullets. He had to get them off a friend. <coughs> and two, when he was there, he'd seen this movie And again, we have books, we have movies, don't we? have songs that influence this man to such a degree that he was going to, for that time being, not do it. But then he thought, I changed his mind. I'm going to do it anyway. So after watching this movie and returning to Hawaii, because he didn't really want to do it and he was having second thoughts then because he'd seen this movie, (coughs) he tells his wife, who'd been married to him for a year, that he was having faults of killing John Lennon. He told her. Uh, And he even showed her the gun and he showed her the bullets. You know, this was in October. She did not inform the police. She did not inform mental health. She didn't do any of that. She did nothing at all. So now we have this man and I think, he said, you know, and she would put up signs as we shall not kill around the place. And that she said that she was going to, you know, help him try and get through this, you know, these feelings. But she didn't inform anybody about that. Knowing that this man <clears throat> had mental health, knowing that he'd already been in a psychiatric unit, this man is telling you, trying to tell someone, I have these faults of killing John Lennon, and his rages and hatred towards John Lennon was real. So she would have seen this escalate. This man wouldn't have been able to hold himself back, but she just put up, you know, wall hangings um, in their apartment that said "We shall not kill." And I think it was on the sixth of December, he had made an appointment to see a psychiatrist on the 6th of December 1980. John Lennon was murdered on the 8th of December. Chapman never went to that appointment. No one made him go to this appointment. He got back on a plane and went to New York. Even though he's told people, his wife, he what his intention is to do. And he went and done it. So I think at one point, when he got to New York, he thought about going to the Statue of Liberty and jumping off. You know, at some point, I don't know why he didn't, because he would already tried to kill himself before. I think by this stage, he had this idea and he was going to fulfil it. And if he couldn't have got to John Lennon, it would have been someone else on that night. That he was going to kill someone on this list. Again, on that night, on the 7th, this is the day now before the murder of John Lennon, he rang his wife from his hotel and they were chatting. And um, she knew now he hadn't made the appointment on the 6th, she knew he was in New York, didn't ask why, must have known. She then um, talks to him about getting help when he gets home, but also. You know, first we start working on our relationship with God. This is what they're talking about. I don't think this woman could have talked him down out of anything because she wouldn't have been strong enough to by this point. He is, these grandiose ideas he's got, without medication, you would never have been able to stop this man at all. Never he had this idea and I don't think what she said and I suppose that's probably why she said okay we need to talk about this relationship you know uh, and his relationship with God because I think she felt that that relationship where he felt he was portraying himself to take a life you know and this is why she's putting up these signs shall not kill to try and react him to something to stop him doing it but there was nothing going to stop this man at this point that was all too late. So on the morning of the 8th of December, uh, Chapman left his room at the Sheraton Hotel and he left his personal items behind, all laid out on the bed actually. Uh, And that's what he wanted the police to find, so he laid it all out, so he knew he was going to get caught. He had no intention of running or getting shot, he knew he was going to get caught. He brought another copy of the catcher uh, in the right and he wrote inside it. this is my statement, meaning the book was his statement of why he done it, the book, and then wrote um, Holden Caulfield. Now, and then he spent most of the day at the entrance, actually, um, of the Dakota apartment building where John um, John Lennon lived, Um, and he was talking to the fans and talking to the doormen. Now, there's lots of fans that stand outside these stars, homes, musicians homes or wherever they're staying to have a sighting of them and he'd been there most of the day and he seemed to come across in a very nice mannered way, the doorman didn't think anything of it, the other fans around didn't think anything of it, but he stayed there all day. Earlier on I think as um, Chapman was chatting he was actually distracted and then John Lennon had actually came out of the apartment building and uh... I think into the limousine so he missed him but what he did see and he did speak to was John Lennon's housekeeper and I think the housekeeper had um, John Lennon's son, Sean, five year old at the time and um, I think Chapman reached out to speak to the housekeeper and she did speak to him and to shake um, Sean's hand and said that he was a beautiful, beautiful boy and he quoted Um, Lennon's song, Beautiful Boy, Darling Boy, but he was waiting to kill his father. He was waiting to kill the father, but spoke and shook the hand of a five-year-old boy outside this building. Luckily, he didn't kill him as well, really. So around 5pm, John Lennon and Joe Crono were leaving their apartment. Um, I think they were um, I think they were going to the record studio, um, record plant studios, which they'd arranged. And um, Chapman had gone up and asked him, you know, with a, um, a, a, a an album, and asked him to sign it. And he signed it and stuff. And he had a little chat saying a few words. Um, then, and you know, did just sign it. And he handed it back and had a little chat. Got in the limousine and went. There was a photographer there, um, amateur um, photographer, I think, Paul Grosh and um, he was standing by and took photos actually of them as well uh, as Lennon signed Chapman's autograph, you know his record. So he had the conversation, John Lennon had taken the time to sign an autograph and stuff, but he still did it. So as everyone was leaving and stuff, he tried to ask another fan, Would she go out with him for that evening, have a drink and stuff? He also asked the amateur photographers to stay around because he said if they'd done that, he wouldn't have murdered him Well, that night, so he says. But he probably would have tried another day. So he was always going to kill John Lennon at some point. And it's actually when Paul McCartney heard about John Lennon's death. Um, He had a phone call from one of the Radio 1 DJs and and then I think... um, Paul McCartney rang him, not on the radio, but rang him separately, privately. Now, John Lennon wasn't actually meant to have been in New York then. They was going to come over and do some recording over here, but something was wrong with the studio for some reason, so he stayed another month, I think, in New York. But he shouldn't have been in New York on that day at all. But I really don't think it matters, because I think if this man hadn't been caught, or if he hadn't murdered somebody else, John Lennon would have died sooner or later by the hands of this man. So it was around 10.50pm, Lennon had been out into the recording studio, the limousine pulls up, um, him and O'Connor gets out of the car, he walks through the archways up towards his building and at that point is when Chapman um, saw this as they passed him, they got out and then he fired I think five five bullets, John Lennon was shot in the back. He was just shot in the back. He had no chance at all. When the police came, um, Chapman was still there reading his book. He didn't try and move away. He didn't say anything. He continued to read Catcher in the Rye. Yoko Ono, of course, was hysterical. The police knew that John Lennon probably wasn't going to live very long if they waited for an ambulance. So the police then took John Lennon in the police car to the hospital and he was dead on arrival. He was shot by this man so many times in the back, he didn't stand a chance. I think the gun he used or the bullets he used were, um, I think it was five, five shots were fired and four hit him I think. And they were hollow point bullets from a thirty eight Special Revolver, four of which hit them in, in the back and one in the shoulder and one punctured his left lung. Uh, and his uh, artery and the minute that artery was hit he was dead in seconds really there was no stopping it. Three hours after John Lennon was pronounced dead at this hospital um, Chapman was already in custody and he told police officers that this Holden Corfield, you know is a big part of me um, from this capture in the riot, because that's all he kept quoting was was quotes and stuff from this book. He also um, said that this Holden character of this book was evil and he had a small part of him inside him. It was gobbledygook, really. There was no sense being made from it. The man had shot John Lennon in cold blood. He'd then sat down where he had done the crime. Opened up a book and started reading it, and literally went with police and was questioned by police, and um, like it was nothing. It was just like it was nothing. Now, you know, there's a bit of controversy around this case. We are talking about 1980s. Okay, so following the murder, Chapman's legal team um, intended to mount an insanity uh, defence. <sighs> which you would assume, I think if it was today, that was exactly what it would have been today. Um, and that would have been based based on this temporary mental health expert, you know, a uh, testament of this mental health expert who said that he was a delusional psychopath. Right, he was. Uh, and he was in this um, psychopathic state, this delusional state. He was in an episode. Um, I think there was more, um, he was more cooperative actually, Chapman, with the prosecution psychiatrist than he was with their own, because he didn't want to be known as mad, you see, that's not what he wanted to be known as, he didn't want to be known as the madman that killed Lennon, he wanted to be known as the man that killed Lennon. So I think really this trial with Mark Chapman sort of tells you everything you need to know about Mark Chapman. Because his lawyers were going for this, you know, diminished responsibility. Some were saying yes, some were saying no. Mark Chapman was saying no. He instructed his lawyers that he wanted to plead guilty. And the reason he wanted to plead guilty, because this was based on his decision that he was doing the will of God. The will of God. So the judge accepted his plea. Which is, you know, I don't know if they would be able to do it now because there would be appeals. But the man didn't want it. He wanted to be guilty. But what the judge did say was that he would plead. You know, he would accept his plea uh, under what he said of God's will. But he needed to have psychiatric treatment. Why he was in prison. So, let the sentence and hearing, it didn't take long to come but I mean, he, he pleaded guilty, and everything. So, the sentence and hearing was on the twenty um, fourth of August, nineteen eighty one. So the judge did sentence um, Chapman to twenty years to life. That's five years less, actually, than the maximum sentence, twenty five to life. He gave him twenty years. I don't know why he didn't give him twenty five, but anyway, given twenty. Um, In uh, 1981 Chapman was in prison. So in 2004 he told the parole board (laughs) that if he could get out of prison he would immediately, immediately, he would try and find a job and I really want to go to a place, you know, or to places um, at least in the state because he's no longer allowed to go abroad. I want to, um, you know, go from church to church and tell people what's happened to me and point the way to Christ. So, listen, this man has been up for parole many, many times, because that's his right, and he hasn't made any of them yet. Um, And we don't know if he will, really. You know, he he could, at some point, he could be released. But up until now, no, he hasn't. So let's talk a little bit about John Lennon, really, from a childhood, because you have this man now that's saying about the words that he wrote and the stuff that he wrote, you know, 10 years prior to when he was murdered, when the Beatles were, you know, at their height and stuff like this, these songs were coming out. Well, John, listen, John Lennon um, was born in Liverpool and he was, by the age of four, he had um, been abandoned really. His father, which he very rarely saw, um, you know, (laughs) really was absent right from a very young age, you really didn't really know him, I think it was Alfie's name was, um, and then you had the mother that really, she just could not be a mother, she didn't have it in her, she was harmless but she just didn't have it in her to be a mother and to, to give him what he needed as a child and really she was quite happy to come and go and I think in the end he had sort of a relationship with her, I think she died I think in um, 1958, um, but he also, I think it was Alfie's father, he had very little contact so really at the age of four this boy was then put into the care of his Uncle George and Aunt Minnie. Now these were lovely people, they were childless, they couldn't have any children and they took John on and they gave him a life, you know they gave him a life. I think they gave him um, the want to achieve. They Didn't say that nothing was impossible. Anything was possible for John Lennon, Um, even from a young age. They didn't have a lot. These were working class people. There's no privilege here. These people earn everything they've got, even to this day. They earned it. And they earned it the hard way. They struggled and travelled and, you know, backed the vans and, you know, they'd done it the hard way. And uh, luckily for them, they made it but John Lennon's early life was not great at all. He always struggled with that. I think his aunt and uncle actually, I love the name of the house, It was um, the house was called um, Men's Dip and it was at 251 at Menlove Men love Avenue, Liverpool. I mean it was great and they lived there years and he kept in close contact actually with his mother Julie, um, Julie um, Lennon until her death in 1958. I think the relationship was just forming, she was having a really good back because he, he was growing up now. And then, she, as he grew up, she sort of was able to form this better relationship with him. And um, she was off to see him and she planned to see him, and she got run over and she was killed. And so that was a big shock to John Lennon about his own mother being killed. Um, his aunt. Um, as I said, he had a lot of contact even with his aunt, um, even after he made it fi- famous. I think he used to ring her at least once a week. So, listen, John w- Winston Lennon uh, was born on the 9th of October um, 1940 and he died on the 8th of December 1980. And he was an English singer, songwriter, and musician and he was a peace activist. When this, you know, he really did. He really cared actually about the planet, about the world, about the people in it. He really did. He really did care. Um, He achieved worldwide fame as a um, co-lead vocalist and rhythm guitarist with the Beatles. His songwriting um, partnership with Paul McCartney remains to this day the most successful in history. You know, you've got these two young lads. That started off together. I think, I think Lennon um, started. I think with the very Men first, and then um, went on to form another band, and that's when it came the Beatles. And um, his Lennon's career. I think in nineteen yeah, the Beatles disbanded in nineteen seventy, and then he went on to fo- uh, continue as a solo artist. So this has been the case, the murder case of John Lennon. He was killed by Mark Chapman on the 8th of December 1980 and what a loss to the world really. So this has been the John Lennon murder case. He was murdered by Mark Chapman 1980 and what a very, very sad loss it was. It's a day marked in history really. I think John Lennon will never be forgotten because of his songs. and you know, and I hope you know, his songs go on for many, many years to come. And I know if Lacey's got anything to do about it, they probably will. So thank you for listening. Thank you for taking the time to comment and everything. It's really lovely. And I'm sorry I haven't been able to get back to you. We've been very, very busy here. You can also follow us on Instagram and on Facebook. You can also catch this on Spotify on our podcast now. And I'll be saying the same. On the podcast, as I'm saying to you. So, thank you very much for watching. So, until the next time, bye bye.